Fortino, no shot. Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores! It's Pula again! Canada wins gold in overtime! Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. The most important voice in hockey right now isn't Ron McLean or Gary Batman or even the disgraced Don Cherry. The most important voice in hockey, at least right now, is Courtney Sito. And I'm not just saying that because she's our guest on today's show, although hopefully it does make you curious to listen to the interview. I'm saying this because we're at a watershed moment in hockey right now with regards to racism. And I mean, sadly, there's been racism in hockey as long as people started strapping blades on their boots and slapping around frozen horse manure across the ice. But the issue really rose to mainstream consciousness just in the last few months. Of course, there was the firing of Don Cherry in early November. And if you missed the last episode of Changing on the Fly, where we talked about that in detail with Christy Lane, please do go back and have a listen to that episode. But it didn't stop with Don Cherry. There was the Akima Liu case who came forward with allegations of racial abuse from his former coach, Bill Peters, and Peters was subsequently fired as head coach of the Calgary Flames. There was also Mike Babcock of the Toronto Maple Leafs and Corey Crawford in Chicago, both accused of abuse, although not necessarily for racism. And then this past Monday, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman was forced to respond to all of this at the board of directors meeting in California. So while it was interesting that Bettman was essentially forced to speak out about racism because it had gotten to this, you know, peak level, his solutions, I think it's safe to say, were fairly toothless. Um, but it's, it's really a monumental task to take on this issue of racism in hockey. Eliminating racism in the game would mean changing the sports culture from the top down. And one player in particular, who I think, is a really valuable voice right now in addressing the toxicity of hockey culture. And I've mentioned his name before, but folks, you got to follow Dan Carcillo. So that's where today's guest, Courtney Sito, comes in. Courtney is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. But I got to know her while she was wrapping up her PhD studies in Vancouver at Simon Fraser University. Her research really stood out to me because she was looking at the experiences of South Asian people in hockey. And while I'm not South Asian, I am really, really interested in experiences that kind of go beyond the norm of what we often consider to be the norm of hockey experiences in Canada. And Courtney cares very deeply about weeding out racism in the game. Now, Courtney, also interestingly enough, isn't an academic who just looks down at hockey from her ivory tower. She's a fan of the game, although I gotta say Canucks fan, unfortunately. She plays in women's hockey leagues, and she works towards making change. Last year, Courtney organized the incredible Racism in Hockey Roundtable in Kingston, and I got to participate in that. 
It brought together hockey historians, people of color, activists in hockey, and maybe most importantly, policymakers from the NHL. I really hope we can bring you some audio from that great roundtable in future episodes of Changing on the Fly, so do stay tuned for that. Anyways, the interview you're about to hear with Courtney was recorded long before that roundtable, back when I was out visiting her in Vancouver in 2018. So you're not going to hear any mention here of Bill Peters or Don Cherry or some of the more contemporary stuff that's been happening, but I think this is a really fascinating discussion regardless of racism in hockey because this is such a crucial moment so we'll get to that interview with courtney sito in just a second do sit tight we'll be right back All right, thank you again so much for hitting play and listening to this episode of Changing on the Fly. As I've said before, and as you may know, I do this all as a labor of love. I'm not paid to do it. And maybe that's unfortunately why you don't hear this podcast very often. I've really been striving and struggling to get it out at least once a month. I got to tell you, folks, and those of you who produce podcasts, I'm sure know this. It is a lot, a lot of work to go out, to do the interviews, to record them, to edit them, to write scripts, to do all the social media. Doing all that on top of a nine to five job. I just started a new job in November. um, So it's a lot. As I said, this is a watershed moment in hockey history. We are seeing racism blown open and discourses around different races and you know racial tensions in ways that we really haven't seen in a long time in the sport. I would love to be putting this out once a week or even more because I think there's enough news and enough material to be doing it. Um, unfortunately, right now, that isn't possible. But my commitment to you, our listener, is that I am going to continue to keep coming back to these issues in an in-depth way, in a way that doesn't just gloss over these, but really tries to break them down for hockey fans. Because again, remember, I am a hockey fan. I am sure many of you out there listening are hockey fans. This isn't about destroying the game or blowing it up. This is about making the game better for everyone. So here is how you can support that initiative and support this podcast. Three easy ways. Number one, you can share this podcast. You can tell a friend, you can hit the retweet button on Twitter, you can share it on social media, get the word out there. That's the best way to grow our listenership. Number two, leaving a rating or review wherever you get this podcast, really helpful. It switches up those algorithms. It helps people to find the podcast. And number three is to make a very modest donation, whatever you can afford. Even $1 a month is a huge boost to us. You can support us on Patreon. We have a Patreon page up at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. There's some great perks up again up there. And once again, every little dollar counts. So push pause on this if you need to and head on over to patreon.com slash changing on the fly. All right, now lace up your skates, strap on your helmet, and let's get into that interview with Courtney Sito on racism in hockey here on Changing on the Fly.
I'm here in Vancouver with Courtney Zito, who just finished her PhD at Simon Fraser University in the communications department. And she looks a lot at the intersections of race, racism, and hockey. So uh, first, Courtney, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Um, one of the really interesting things I think you've framed in your research work is looking at how two of the things that Canada is best known for are multiculturalism and hockey. And sometimes those work together, sometimes they don't. Um, so can you explain that a bit, like what you see are like some of the instances where those two huge markers of this nation work well together and, and where they don't? Good question. I think um, they work well together for commercial purposes very well. Your Tim Hortons, your Scotiabank, um, and even Hockey Night in Canada advertising and programming. Um, it's a good story to tell and it's a good identity to have. Um, where they don't really work so well is in the actual lived experiences in the kind of the nuances of Canadian living and, and hockey culture. Um, so I really saw it as kind of an interesting um, tension that no one really talks about. We just kind of assume it's true and we hope it's true. That's And I think that's the important part is that we want to believe in in both the, um, the unifying force of hockey and the unifying force of Canadian multiculturalism and, and the policy itself. I mean, so often you hear that like, hockey is such a huge part of being Canadian, right? And so I think the assumption is like, if you grow up here, you've likely grown up, you know, um, the cliche is kids learn to skate before they learn to walk. Um, or, you know, if you're a newcomer to Canada that you kind of like, like hockey can be kind of like an assimilation tool and you just learn to love uh, whichever team is like closest to you. You know, you hear like stories of, like the Subban family coming here from the Caribbean and then, uh, you know, falling in love with the Montreal Canadiens. Um, but I know your research has looked at like how racialized people in Canada have been left out of a lot of hockey history and how that's impacted in a sense like who's considered Canadian and who isn't. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Um, well we have a very dominant understanding of what hockey history is and we talk about it as a, as a white man's game and we have been taught to believe that narrative even though um, the history of hockey a large part of it comes from indigenous participation and contributions as well as the um, black hockey leagues out of the Maritimes. Um, so the hockey that we play today in the NHL and that we credit as the fastest game on earth and that we love, a lot of that has to do with how um, the colored hockey leagues played um, and adapted the rules from what used to be more like a game of rugby. <clears throat> so I think that those contributions, they get uh, very easily erased. And, and then we adopt this um, idea of a white man's game when really people of color have been in the game the entire time. Um, and so that's important to, to understand that we're not really just trying to include people of color in Canada's game. Um, they it belongs to them almost as much as, as anybody else. So mm -hmm. I think that's important that especially kids and, and new, new immigrants understand that it's not, you're not really actually just fitting yourself into something. Um, you or your heritage has helped create it from the get-go. 
a lot of your work has focused uh, specifically on uh, experiences of South Asian uh, athletes in hockey, uh, which is really interesting. I didn't even know this until recently, but apparently South Asians make up the largest uh, kind of visible minority group uh, within Canada. And so what kind of led you to this um, element or that this interest in your research? It was a, a combination of things. So the first would have been the um, when the NHL introduced hockey is for everyone in 2011. Um, it took me back to when I used to work at Sportcheck in the hard goods department, and I helped many Canadian families and kids join the pastime of hockey through the necessary stuff of buying equipment. And one day a young Sikh boy came in with his mother and he had a small uh, turban on his hand, a patka, and we suited him up feet to neck, just like you do with anybody else. We get to the helmet and it was an uncommon problem to have to try to fit a helmet with his patka. Um, he eventually took the braids out of his cloth, but his hair was still in braids and it just, none of the helmets fit appropriately. They didn't fit safely and we tried everything we could. I asked his mother if he could take out the braids just when he plays hockey and she replied with a calm no. They had a, a brief conversation in Punjabi and he took off all the gear that he had and he left it in the store. So I just didn't know if he maybe went to another store the next day and they found something that fit or they come they came to some agreement at home or he never got to play hockey again so that was really um a memory that stuck with me that that's not a story that we talk about popularly and to have that conversation about citizenship um national pastimes and faith in the sport check store mm. is a very odd place to have that conversation right and it's not something that happens for most canadians um, so when they said hockey is for everyone, that was the thing. I was like, well, it's not actually for everyone. So that was kind of uh, one big instigating uh, event. And then also um, the Hockey Night Punjabi broadcast was becoming really popular around that time. And um, the Breakaway film also came out. So there was all these media confluences with personal experience that kind of said, I think that there's a bigger story that needs to be told here. Um, but I'm just kind of curious to know, like, so you've, you've spoken with a lot of South Asian uh, athletes, with families, with fans in hockey. What have been some of the most interesting things that you've come across uh, in this research? Um, probably one of the most interesting observations for me was the idea that um, racial slurs that are thrown out on the ice are considered fair game in a lot of sense. Um, the players that I talked to didn't consider it racism because they came from the opposing team. Um, so they figured if my teammates call me something like that, if my coach says something like that, um, then I can consider that racism because they're treating me differently. But the other team, we're not supposed to like them anyways. They're not supposed to like us. They're supposed to get under your skin. And they almost saw it sometimes as a, as a badge of respect. Oh, I'm so good that they're going to try and get me off my game. Um, but the pattern just doesn't really jive with um, what we understand of chirping and what is acceptable chirping. Because if you look at any Hockey 101 guides on, on the internet, none of them say use racial slurs to, to get under someone's skin. Um, so I think that was really interesting, as well as the fact that because of the amount of discrimination and marginalization that South Asian players are facing, there, there is a trend and a desire to create South Asian specific hockey spaces. So power skating programs and things like that. Um, which really speaks to um, 
a, a specific context right now where the South Asian families that are participating are of a class position where they have the money to be able to create opportunities if they're not receiving them um, on their own. Mm. So there are people kind of going outside the system and say, well, we're going to hire the best coaches and we're going to buy ice and, and buy time so that we can give our our kids the best opportunity at an NHL career um, if you're not going to allow them into this academy and that academy. So it'll be an interesting uh, development over the next few years. I know APNA Hockey in Edmonton is one of uh, those South Asian specific hockey schools and it's not exclusive, um, but it is designed with the goal of trying to get Sikh and Punjabi um, athletes to the NHL level. Mm. So it's mm -hmm. something to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's really interesting what you said about the chirping because um, it makes me think about uh, what we see uh, with black athletes in hockey. Um, you know, specifically there's that incident a little while ago with Devontae Smith-Pelly. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that slur of, oh, go play basketball is something I think a lot of um, black players often are confronted with. And so I'm wondering, like, how might these experiences of uh, South Asian people in hockey differ from, let's say, either black players or even indigenous players who also face a lot of racism on the ice? A lot of South Asian players get misidentified as black athletes, and then they get the N-word thrown at them historically. Um, so the misidentification of it is also problematic because it's like if you're going to be a racist figure out <laughs> what you're actually standing against um, but at the same time they get um, such a wide variety of uh, racial slurs so it can be um, kind of Middle Eastern slurs as well as uh, um, Indian um, stereotypes and things like that um, so I don't necessarily think that it's different, but I think that it's a, it's a lar it's a much broader scope as to what can come at you on the ice as opposed to if you're just a, a black athlete. Mm -hmm. And so let's come back to, um, some of the work you've done around, uh, Hockey Night in Canada and Punjabi. Uh, I discovered that I think in the playoffs, what was it like maybe five years ago, I was watching the Montreal Canadians in the playoffs. And then a friend of mine was like, Oh, look, like they have it in Punjabi. And I was like, I was just surprised. I was like, wow, I, I didn't know that there was, let's say like a big enough audience um, to even have that. And I, and I found it was a super interesting way to kind of like try to make hockey more uh, accessible in some ways um, to, uh, to Punjabi speaking folks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in your study, you looked at Twitter reactions to uh, Hockey Night in Canada in Punjabi. Um, first, before we get into that, maybe just for people who aren't even familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit about like the program and the kind of history of like how it came into being and then what people's reactions to it were? Sure. So in 2008, um, for the NHL playoffs, the CBC decided to try an experiment in multicultural programming, and they offered it in a bunch of different languages, including Mandarin, um, Hindi, Italian, and Inuk Tutuk, um, which is an Inuit language. And Punjabi was the only one that actually stuck. Um, so the following regular season, we started with um, Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, um, airing on satellite I believe and online as well so it started out in Toronto um, with 
in just a small room that they tell me that could fit basically four people, shot on a camcorder. Um, and it was there for about four years. It briefly moved to Calgary, where um, Harna Ryan Singh, who's kind of the main broadcaster, is located. And then once Rogers bought out the Hockey Night franchise, it landed in Vancouver here and adopted an old Sportsnet Vancouver set. Um, so it's been housed here since, I believe, 2013. Um, and it's just been growing in popularity pretty much with every passing year. Um, it is privately funded. And the estimates for viewers are, you know, just over 200,000 viewers per, per broadcast, which is pretty good because it's just under like a regional game in English. Mm. Um, so, yeah, early on, uh, the reactions on Twitter when it wasn't as popular were very much... Um, what are these guys doing? They don't know anything about hockey. Why are they on my television? A lot of it was like, why are my tax dollars going towards this? And we're like, well, it's privately funded, so you don't need to worry about that. But that should kind of be the least of your worries. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of pushback as to um, policing who is acceptable in the hockey culture, but also who we think has expertise um, about the game. And if you look at Twitter reactions now, especially post-2016, um, when the show started picking up uh, more social media attention with the Benino, Benino, Benino call. Um, suddenly they've got a very large following that is willing to shield them from a lot of the racism that still exists. So mm -hmm. it, absolutely, it absolutely still exists. It's just that today when that happens, you will get easily 500, 1,000 people on Twitter that will jump to the show's um, defense and be like, you know, kind of get out of here so mm. it's interesting to see kind of that popularity can take you over a hump where it doesn't eliminate racism but you feel it a lot less once you kind of have a, a level of support mm. Mm -hmm. and because you mentioned that uh Benino call that went viral for people who might not know about it I think that was an interesting moment so can you just explain that yeah so during I think it was in the first round that year. Um, Nick Benino scores a game-winning goal, and um, as the broadcasters tell me, it was because of an accident on their on their um, game sheet. They accidentally put Benino as left wing, Benino as center, Benino as right wing. So when he scored, they just kind of ran with it: Benino, 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 um, and that went uh, pretty viral on uh, on Twitter. And then Benino scores a big goal later on, I think in the final round, and then that kind of explodes. And the Penguins saw them as kind of a good luck charm, the broadcast team, and then they flew them to Pittsburgh to be part of the Stanley Cup parade and everything. So that was a really nice moment um, to see kind of bridging that gap. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, I mean, it's just such a beautiful call in a lot of ways. And like, even the way his, his voice kind of breaks, like with enthusiasm. Um, it kind of, I think, for a lot of people, including myself, evoked the way that um, football commentators, like in Latin America, will call goals, like with just this like enthusiasm where it almost like shatters the microphone because it's so loud. And, and in in a way, like for me, it almost kind of situated hockey actually within like a global game rather than kind of like the North American and Scandinavian game that's normally seen as. Um, 
I'm wondering if, if that was kind of a takeaway you got from it or like, like did it make it anything kind of more, let's say, global or international than it is now? That's an interesting observation. I think that um, for what the broadcast team tells me is that their intent is very much to make, to make the program speak to Punjabi culture, which is more um, loud and boisterous and, and enthusiastic than our traditional Canadian way of watching sport and just general decorum. Um, so that speaks to exactly what you're talking about, like a soccer-type broadcast football um, that is... Uh, more exciting and it draws in uh, new fans in a way that traditional hockey broadcasting tries to kind of keep people at arm's length. Um, we really um, respect expertise and things like that in in Canadian hockey culture. So this trying to tries to break down those barriers. So um, I think it's a good observation that it speaks more to a global game in that it is kind of akin to soccer football broadcasting for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe speaking a little bit more broadly, I think that we're, we're about to see like a really interesting shift in hockey um, in the coming generations uh, with, you know, more players like P.K. Subban, Wayne Simmons, um, Bridget LaRock, like um, kind of like getting into these like elite spaces and, 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 and getting much more uh, national attention. Um, yet we still see racism persisting within the game. What do you think can be done to like build more inclusive, more anti-racist consciousness and anti-racist spaces within hockey, not just at the NHL level, but on all different levels? Well, to your point about the fact that um, we hope that we're gonna see more diversity at the elite levels, I don't necessarily know that that's true. Um, or at least that we're going to see this huge spike all of a sudden. Um, Because from my research, I think we really need to look at hockey academies and who gets into hockey academies and who gets out of them, given that at least 80 to 90% of your elite hockey players come out of the academy system. It's become an additional hurdle for racialized people to get through. So if you look at grassroots hockey, yes, it is more diverse than ever. Timbits hockey, sure. But... That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what Team Canada is going to look at, look at um, in a few years. So I think we need to make that distinction that high performance sport is very different from grassroots sport. Um, and as for how do we create more anti-racist spaces, we need to talk about it. Um, I think we need to incorporate it into the coaching system. Um, as well as um, the actual player system. So as an example, maybe every peewee player goes through an anti-race training workshop, um, just like they're doing with You Can Play, you know, uh, homosexuality training. Um, it doesn't happen by itself. And we've, we have done this for a long time where we hope and that time will pass and that that's enough. Um, but it's proven that it's not. So at this point, we need to be more proactive about it. So I think certainly including um, more people of color on programs like Hockey Night in Canada, which we're seeing with Harner Ryan Singh is slowly making his way into more mainstream broadcasting is awesome. Um, I think that's really important because representation is important, Um, but also we need to do the on the ground work. We need to have education, but also legitimate consequences for um, racial slurs on the ice, um, a reporting system for what we th- what we see or we think is discrimination. 
um, because the sports system is so fragmented. It's like if somebody, if your coach is uh, treating you differently and you think it's because of racism, where do you go? Who do you take that to? There's no one in the system right now that has to listen to you. Uh, and players have accepted this, that they've, they've been taught that if you're going to be different and you want to succeed, you just suck it up. Um, and that's also part of the problem is that we've created players who are willing to accept racism. So it's a kind of also unlearning the fact that it's not acceptable. And lastly, maybe just on a more personal level, um, can you talk a little bit about your own relationship uh, with hockey um, and how you like, yeah, like how you got into the sport, uh, into the work you're doing? Yeah, so hockey, I probably started picking it up as a fan when I was about six got some like hockey sticks for my birthday and I play street hockey all the time and as I said like the first thing I ever wanted to be was an NHL goalie I wanted to be like Kirk McLean mm-hmm. um the first hockey game I went to was the Winnipeg Jets versus the Vancouver Canucks back at the Pacific Coliseum mm-hmm. and and you're a Vancouver kid Vancouver kid born and raised mm-hmm. um Canucks fan to a fault I guess um, and I wanted to play hockey but both of my parents worked full-time so they weren't able to take me to 7 a.m. practices and at that time there just wasn't a lot of girls hockey opportunities so I ended up playing roller hockey for a few years back when the Vancouver voodoos were an actual thing mm. um, played a lot of roller hockey and then got into competitive tennis and then when I was about 2021. 20, I was like, I always wanted to play hockey. I was like, you know what? I have the money and I have a car now. I can actually just go and do it. So I've been playing recreational women's hockey at Burnaby eight ranks for oh, the past 13 ish years um, on the hat chicks, which is our team now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they are. You got a sticker on your phone there. I see a phone case. Yeah. So they are my second family for sure. Nice. And, oh, I should have also mentioned, you're also one of the editors of the Hockey and Society blog, um, a wonderful blog that's always looking about um, looking at social issues in hockey. Maybe just give a quick plug for that and tell us a little bit about uh, Hockey and Society. Sure. Hockey and Society was created in 2011 um, with my colleague, Mark Norman. He was finishing up his PhD at the University of Toronto when I was finishing up my master's and he'd always had the idea of creating a critically conscious hockey blog. Um, so we've been running for for the past seven years now, I guess, and we're always looking for new writers. Um, and we basically try to publish the stories that you're not gonna find on the, the average sports page. So um, your untold stories and um, different takes on things and we've kind of existed in a very privileged bubble that we don't get a lot of backlash that uh, some perhaps larger blogs get so it's a nice kind of space to be in right now (laughs) Mm. well well, people should definitely check it out again i've been speaking with courtney sito here at simon fraser university uh, in vancouver thank you so much courtney thank you aaron All right, welcome back here on Changing on the Fly. My name is Aaron. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Make sure you follow Courtney on Twitter. We're going to post a link to her profile in the show notes. She's an amazing follow. And again, someone who's doing incredible, groundbreaking work on combating racism in hockey. We're going to take a break for the holidays here on the program. We're, of course, going to be back with more Changing on the Fly in the year 2020. So to all of you who've been with us throughout 2019, especially for all of you who've been with us since the beginning, 
Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you're subscribed. Have an amazing holidays and a happy new year. And we'll be back soon. That's it for us. And lastly, I want to take this chance to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. Aiden, Nick A, Jeff, Jeremy, Dan, Nick T, Shona, Andrew, Ted, Ellen, Amber, Bruce, Sam, and Grill. You want your name on that beautiful credit roll? Sign up to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Catch you very soon.